Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Now, the reality is Mother's Day and Father's Day weekends uh, aren't easy for some people. It tends to be reflected, I've noticed, in church attendance um, on both those weekends. Some others don't want to come to a Mother's Day service like this because they feel they failed as a mother. Others don't come to Mother's Day services because they've longed to be a wife and mother, but they're still waiting for one or both of those to happen, and it's just too painful. Uh, to be reminded again of their disappointment in this area. Some don't come because their relationship with their mother uh, was difficult. It's been hurtful. And then, of course, some don't come to Mother's Day services because they're men. (laughs) They figure it doesn't apply to them. And so uh, I'm just really glad all of you showed up. You know, that's great. Um, (laughs) Anyways... So today, I want to lean into uh, some of the pain, the hurt, and the disappointment that often is heightened on special days like Mother's Day and Father's Day, but really goes much deeper and much wider than the disappointment that some feel uh, around being a mother or a father. My sense is that there are a lot of people in our city and our country who are unhappy, are discouraged, and in some cases even depressed because life has not turned out the way they hoped that it would. Recently, someone sent me a link uh, to a talk given on YouTube by Simon Sinek, who was talking about the millennial generation, which would be people somewhere in the age between 25 and 35. He said, millennials grew up constantly hearing their parents say things like, you're special, you're really special. You can succeed in anything you put your mind to. However, now, five to ten years later, their career their accomplishments, their marriage, their family life is far from what they dreamed it would be or thought it would be, even expected it to be. And many are not only disappointed, but they're disillusioned, they're discontented, they're unsettled and unhappy with their lives. Years ago, I recall uh, a man telling me the same thing, how growing up, uh, he too had parents and even his coaches uh, constantly comment on the potential that they saw in him. He even had people that he respected at church tell him that they believed he was going to be used greatly to advance the kingdom of God. But he went on to say, he says, now I'm in my 40s. And even though I've been open to God's leading and even though I've, I've done my best to be faithful in my life and at work, I, I'm, I'm really disappointed. I'm discouraged because I haven't really accomplished anything significant the way that people always said I would. Most days, he said, I feel like I'm just putting in time. And to be honest, I live most days with this kind of low-grade sadness in my life. I'm wondering how many of you can relate to this fellow. We all want to make a difference. We want our life to count for something. The question is, what if it isn't happening? What if your life, what what if your role as a mother or a father or your marriage or your career or your impact as a Christ follower isn't turning out the way that you envisioned it would? Now, in my opinion, no one could relate 
to these feelings of disappointment more than the prophet Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was still a young man, one day the Lord comes up to him and says in chapter 1 verse 4, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah receives a clear calling from God to be his prophet to his people, to stop their idolatry, to turn back to God, or risk being destroyed by the aggressor nations around them. Now talk about a significant calling to bring perspective. You know, I'm sure many of us have watched more than one movie in which the storyline is the world is about to be destroyed either by a meteorite or by some alien force. And then there is this person or perhaps this small team of people who are called to put it all on the line, to sacrifice family and everything, to risk their very lives to save the world from certain destruction. Well, that's the sort of call that Jeremiah receives here. Now, before Jeremiah received this call from God, I'm sure he had plans for his life. Plans similar to other Jewish young men his age. I'm sure he dreamed of being married one day, having a family, a comfortable home, a good job, the fellowship of close friends, and just being looked up by others, you know, in the synagogue, by others in his community, as a good man, an upstanding citizen. And yet God's call on his life radically changed those plans. In chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord calls on Jeremiah not to be married, not to have a family. I mean, that in itself is a big ask. In addition, the message he will be asked to give to his people will not be popular. He is going to be rejected big time. And so like Moses, Jeremiah gives the Lord a truckload of excuses. Like, Lord, you're talking to the wrong guy. You know, I'm just way too young. I'm way too inexperienced. Not only that, but I do not have the relevant degree that I need from the University of Jerusalem for what you're calling me to do. And beyond that, I am incompetent as a leader and as a communicator. But you see, God doesn't look at what man looks at. God looks at the heart. And when God looked at Jeremiah's heart, he saw a humble heart, a heart that, a person that he could work through, and he said, Jeremiah, you're the man. And in verse 7, the Lord said, do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And will rescue you. And so even though the cost of saying yes to God's call was incredibly high, Jeremiah throws caution to the wind and he says yes to God because undoubtedly he believes that in doing so, he is going to be used of God to not only save his people from certain, a certain destruction, but to turn them back to God. I mean, talk about a pathway to greatness. 
And so in chapters 2 to 10, we see Jeremiah passionately carrying out the assignment God gives him, boldly declaring the truth that God wants him to. His message, of course, is far from popular, and soon he's despised, he's shunned, he's ridiculed. In chapter 11, the people of his hometown, including some of his relatives and friends, are convinced that he is mentally unstable, and they drum up a conspiracy to have him put to death. Over in chapter 20, he's beaten. In chapter 37, he's beaten a second time and thrown in a dungeon. And then in chapter 38, an attempt is made to shut him up for good. He's lowered into a deep cistern, most likely filled with leeches and insects, the bones of dead animals, and the mud at the bottom that is so soft that he sinks into it right up to his knees. And with the passing of time, you just get this sense that Jeremiah is increasingly getting upset. And no question he was discouraged and upset by the rejection and the beatings that he had been receiving. But I'm convinced that what upset Jeremiah the most is the fact that no one listened to him. Not one life was changed through his ministry. In Jeremiah 20 verse 7, you can just tell that, that he's not in a good place emotionally or spiritually. He's really in a dark place. He says, oh Lord, you deceived me. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, Lord, you made me believe that your call was going to be an exciting adventure. That my life was going to make a real difference and that through my ministry, many people were going to have major heart change and turn back to you. And so I totally committed my life to you. I said no to the good life. I said no to being married, to having a family. And yet now, 40 years later, Lord, all I get is insults and mockings and beatings. I feel totally worthless. I feel humiliated. Everyone despises me. I feel all alone. Now, the warnings that Jeremiah had given to his people ultimately became reality. The nation of Babylon invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. But imagine how heartbreaking and frustrating it must have been for him to witness the destruction of his nation, knowing that he had sacrificed everything to warn them, and yet not one person listened to him. Not one person had a change of heart. And from what we can tell from the scriptures for the rest of his life, Jeremiah never sees any fruit. He never sees any uh, results for his efforts. Unlike Joseph, who you recall we talked about last time, you know, after 13 years, he didn't have an easy time of it either. He went 13 years in his 20s being a slave and then being thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But eventually Joseph, as God had promised, he went from the prison to the palace. He was put in a high position of influence. He was used greatly by God. Unlike him, Jeremiah, 
is never elevated to greatness. He never has the joy of seeing how his life and his ministry impacted others in a significant way. So I guess I'm wondering how many of us can identify even somewhat with Jeremiah's disappointment? Perhaps are experiencing a dark night of the soul right now. When you were young and you and your fiancé believed that your love and your marriage was going to be so much greater than your parents' marriage. It was going to be so much better than the marriage of others that you knew. Your marriage was going to be a model of perfect love, romance, and passion that others were going to admire. They were going to even envy and want to emulate. You envisioned leading marriage seminars, helping others work through the tough stuff in their marriage. But life happened. Unexpected hardships came. Both of you at times took selfish exits. And over time, it all took a toll. And now, 10, 15 years into it, your marriage is not in a state of constant bliss, but on life support. And you are so incredibly sad and disappointed. Some of you dreamed of winning the greatest mother or father award. As a young couple, you would watch other families and you'd say to each other, when we have children, they are not going to be like that. Man, we're going to be such amazing parents. Our home and our family life is going to be so awesome, so filled with fun. Our kids are going to rise up and call us blessed every chance they get. (laughs) And then you actually had kids. And with each passing year, your dream fades a little bit more to where now your kids want little to do with you. Or at least they don't want much to do with the values that you lived and taught. You'd be okay just receiving the I Survive Parenting Award, but you're not even sure you qualify for that. Some of you felt God calling you to start a business that would be Christ-centered, that would treat its employees really well would invest a high percentage of the profits into God's kingdom. And for a time, everything was up and to the right, going so well, but then the economy turned, and you're about to lay off your last employee. Some of you felt God leading you to invest in a ministry of some kind, to give your life to it, but challenges and difficulties have been overwhelming, and you're exhausted, you're discouraged, because you're hardly seeing any results for the investment that you're making and no one even seems to notice or care. You feel like you're all alone in this. See, we all want our life to count. Many of us have felt called of God to do certain things, to make a difference in some way. But it hasn't happened the way that we envisioned it would. So how do we deal with the disappointment that we feel? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, you have to get right to the core of the matter. 
He said in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And some translations say God and manna. In other words, you can't serve and you can't serve God or the things of this world, the things he created. You can't serve the eternal things and the temporary things. You have to make a decision. Jesus says here, you have to make a decision about who you're really going to trust in life, who you're going to believe, who you're going to follow after. Will I trust God and God alone as my source of truth, wisdom, and direction in life? Or will I trust myself? In essence, will I be my own God and put my trust in the wisdom and the temporary things of our culture? Take the matter of significance or success in life, which is really the heart of what we're talking about here. Who we trust in will greatly impact not only how we define what a significant life is or what a successful life is, but it will also make a huge difference in how we deal with the disappointments of life and even how we see those disappointments. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus describes what a great or significant life is. And we've focused on that passage uh, for, for two messages already. But he describes what greatness looks like in our culture and what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And in verse 42, he describes the thinking of secular culture. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Jesus essentially says here, in a culture that rejects God, the great life, the successful life, is not going to be based on what, what God thinks of you. Obviously not, because you've rejected him. No, it's going to be based on what others think of you. Or where you stand or rank in relation to other people. And so the pathway to greatness or success in secular culture is competing with others and keeping score. And so if my child is smarter or better behaved than your child, then I have cause to feel greater and more successful as a parent than you do. On the other hand, if the reverse is true, then I have cause to feel disappointed Defeated, perhaps even failing as a parent. The same is true in other areas of life, including the status of, of my position or my net worth in relation to yours. I will either feel successful or like a failure depending on how I'm doing in relation to others. But you see, it all comes down to who are you trusting in? If you trust in God, then you will find your identity and your value in Him and embrace His definition of what a great or what a significant life is. So here's the thing. If Jeremiah's trust had been in himself rather than in God, 
he would have had great cause not only to be depressed, but to stay depressed the rest of his life. I mean, think about it this way. Here he is. Let's say he's 55 years of age, which was pretty old in those days. This didn't actually happen, but let's just say he goes to his 40-year high school reunion. And he meets some of his old high school buddies who are married, and they're talking about how well their kids are doing, what great you know, universities and colleges they're at and great careers they have and they're talking about all the money they've made and, and the cottages that they own and, and the extra uh, revenue property that they've stockpiled and all the vacations they've gone on and all the ones they're planning to go on and they're just going on and on. And then finally, after they all kind of catch their collective breath, they turn and they look at Jeremiah and they say, so what have you been up to? And he says, well, I've been challenging people to turn from their idols and to turn back to God. Well, how's that been going? I mean, you must have a huge church by now. I mean, you've been doing this for 40 years. Well, actually, I haven't seen anyone have a change of heart. Really? Hmm. So... What suburb in Jerusalem are you living in? Oh, I, I don't have a home. So are you ready for retirement? No. Are you married? Well, no. Do you have a family? Uh, no. Now this didn't happen, of course. But it illustrates the battle that must have been raging inside Jeremiah. Will... He define his worth and his value on the basis how he compares with others, on the basis of what his culture says success is, or will he determine his value on the basis of how God sees him and who God says he is? See, it's a battle that we all face as Christians. Every day we see people around us spending their time on themselves and their resources purchasing toys and cottages and upgrading their houses and going on exotic vacations. And here we are investing a lot of our money and our time in God's kingdom and ministering to people. And all of this causes us from time to time as we look over the fence as we go to high school reunions and connect again with friends of old, all of it causes us from time to time to question the path that we're on and begins to chisel away a little bit at the foundation of our trust in God and to ask ourselves, am I on the right path? We look around and, and it seems like others are doing really significant things. They get promoted. They, you know, they get all the accolades and everything else. And here we are. We're working. We're serving behind the scenes. And, and nobody ever notices. Nobody ever cares. And even though God's called us to this, our trust is waning. We're questioning whether trusting God and his call in our lives is the best way to go. We have thoughts about packing it in. 
And you see, that's what Jeremiah was struggling with. I mean, you read that one particular chapter where he's just going on and on. I mean, he even talks about, you know, regretting the day that he was born. And he pours out his questions to God. Because his life seems so insignificant. It seems like it's just been a waste. But even though there were moments when he vented his doubts, Jeremiah remained faithful to the Lord. In Jeremiah 20 verse 9 he says, However, if I do not mention God anymore, or speak anymore in his name, his word in my heart is like a fire shut up in my bones. I cannot hold it in. Jeremiah says, I can't quit. I can't walk away from God. I can't walk away from his calling in my life, even though it may not be something that I'm... It's just something that's tough. As much as I don't understand why God's called me to do such a difficult task, even though I don't understand why God never used me to impact even one life, the only thing that makes sense in life is to trust in my God and remain faithful to Him. If I walk away from God and His call for me, I have no reason to get out of bed. Even though my life is hard and my impact, the impact of my ministry is disappointing, I can't imagine the despair that I would face if I turned my back on God and lived the rest of my life living in meaningless, self-absorbed, materialistic, pleasure-seeking life. Like my high school buddies. Yes, from a human point of view, it seemed to Jeremiah that his high school friends were enjoying a much better life than he was. And it was pretty obvious to his high school friends that they were. But you see, his trust wasn't in what his culture said. Success was. His trust was in God. And one day, he knew a day was coming when all that would change. When his friends would see differently. For you see, the day did come when the nation of Babylon invaded Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. And the temporary things of earth that in other words, all the things that his friends had lived for went up in smoke. And the only thing they had or didn't have was where they stood with God in their heart. After he poured out his questions and his disappointment to God, all indication is, is that Jeremiah came to the end of his life with a sweet spirit toward God. In Lamentations 3, near the end of his life, when he's in a foreign land, he writes these words in verse 22. Because of the Lord's great love. You've got to have a friendship with God to be able to say that about God when you had a life the way that Jeremiah did. Because of the Lord's great love, 
we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great, great is your faithfulness, O God. His heart is still right with God. He still sees beauty in the world around him. He still sees God's grace at work. And he's still resting in the sovereignty of God. And so must we. We need to believe that he sees us, that, that he knows our name, that he is with us, that he hears us, and that he can be trusted to do what we can't do. And you know what? Even if you get no explanation why your son or daughter or your career or your business has gone sideways, even if you never get any explanation why your ministry seems to be at a standstill, believe and trust that God sees things that you don't see and he's at work in ways you don't know and that in all things he's working for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The life of Jeremiah teaches us that God is far more interested in deepening our relationship with him than he is in elevating our happiness. He's far more interested in deepening our character than he is in elevating our comfort. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God reveals his heart for his people. And he says this, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It's a great verse. It's often misquoted. But it does reveal the heart that God has for his people. It does reveal that God has our best interests at heart in all things. But here's the thing. When God says he has plans to prosper us, you know, some people conclude that God's talking about wealth and health and just living a good and fulfilling life. And yet the word prosper here, do you know what it means? It means to thrive. Which means even though God wants to meet our needs, what he wants more than anything is for our relationship with him to thrive, to prosper. You go on to read the verses that follow. Verse 11. And it's all about God's invitation to come into relationship with him. Like I said, God isn't opposed to us being happy or healthy or even wealthy. But he is opposed to anything that he created replacing him as the object of our highest affection. And he will use whatever comes along to draw me closer to him and to shape my character because my ultimate destiny is not so much about what I do with my life or what I achieve. Fundamentally, it's about who I become in him. And that is Jeremiah's story.
his relationship with God is really all that mattered. Some of you, like Joseph, you will see a breakthrough at some point and move from the prison to the palace, as it were. You will see the, your, the cause of your grief, the cause of your disappointment come to an end and experience the new thing that, that God has in mind for you. You will see that son or that daughter, that husband or wife, have a complete change of heart and reestablish their relationship with God and with you. In God's timing and in God's way, some of you will see breakthrough in your career and your ministry. And you will see God use you in very special ways. But some of you, like Jeremiah, for reasons only God knows, you will remain in prison, as it were. You will see no change in your circumstances or in the lives of those that you care about. You will see no significant breakthroughs in your career or business or relationships. And that does not mean that God does not have a plan for you. Does not mean that he loves you any less. What it means is that he is sovereign. He's in charge. He knows what he's doing. And one day you will see and you will understand. I really wish I could tell you that if you commit yourself to God and you walk in faith and you honor his word and that, that everything's going to work out that you'll have a nice life, that your dreams will all come true and you won't have any problems. I wish I could say that, but I can't. In part because it, it wasn't true in Jeremiah's life. Neither was it true in Jesus' life. Who was born in a cattle trough, grew up in a poor family, never was married or had a family, had little money, was dependent on others for his own shelter, and ultimately died on a curse at a cross like a criminal. And neither is it true of hundreds of thousands of Christian mothers in third world countries who have absolutely nothing this world in the West seeks after. They have absolutely none of that and yet are filled with more joy and more contentment than most women in our country and city will ever have, even though they have everything this world has to offer. You know, as I heard someone say recently, most of us in North America obsess, and we worry about being fulfilled in life. We worry about promotions. We worry about living a life of significance. While most of the rest of the world is concerned about whether or not they'll be able to feed their family the next day. We lose perspective so easily, don't we? The truth is sometimes life is really hard because the world is broken. Sometimes life doesn't make sense. Sometimes it just seems unfair. And like Jeremiah, we wonder whether God's aware of it, whether God even cares. It's in those moments when we're disappointed, when we're disillusioned with God, we have to make a choice. And this goes back to what Jesus said. We have to make a decision about who we're going to trust in. We can get bitter, we can get angry, we can walk away from God, we can lose all hope, which if you think about it, accomplishes absolutely nothing but to leave us in a state of despair and hopelessness. Or... 
We can choose to trust God and to believe God about what he says about himself, about his love and care for us, even if it doesn't line up with our present circumstances. Listen, friends, our God knows what he's doing. And one day we will realize that. He says, I know the good, hope-filled plan I have for you. And fundamentally, folks, that's about a thriving relationship with him. And you know what? If he knows the plans that he has for me, that's good enough for me. I don't have to know it all. I don't have to know all what he has in mind. I don't have to see his plans for me necessarily. I just want to see him. I just want to trust him. I want to live in humble dependence upon his enabling grace. And friends, that is what he wants from us as well. I'll close with this. When I was in my early 30s, I had cancer surgery. It was actually the second such surgery in a, in a decade. And a couple of months after the surgery, I had an appointment with the surgeon. He came into um, the office and, and he checked the surgical site. And then he went out and he came back with two other doctors. They all checked the surgical site. They all went out. A few moments later, he came back in. And he said, Henry, there's a mass where we just did surgery. We don't know what it is, but... If it's cancer, this is bad news because we only did surgery a few months ago. He says, so we're going to do a biopsy. We're going to do a CAT scan. And so as you can well imagine, there was a period of time in which I didn't know what my future would be. Of course, as if I would ever know what my future would be. I found myself in a little room waiting for this CAT scan. And when you're going through something like this, it seems like the voice of God just becomes so much more clear. It's like so many other things kind of, you know, fade away. And so, I was having this conversation with God. And one of the things he asked of me was this. He said, Henry, am I enough? And at that point, in, in that period of our life, we'd have, we just had four boys. Our oldest son was six. Our youngest was six months. And I just was real honest with him. And I said, Lord, you gave me these four boys. I, I want to be their dad. And he says, I know, but I need to know, am I enough? Three times he asked me that question. I felt like Peter when Jesus asked him, do you love me? And I knew what the Lord was asking of me. He was asking me, do you love me above all else? Am I the object of your highest affection? Was I prepared to release the things of earth that were precious to me? 
and love and trust him and him alone? Was he enough? Or did it have to be him and someone else? Did it have to be him and something else? I received a gift that day. The gift of seeing my life at its end. And realizing that in that moment, it is only going to be me and Jesus. It won't be Jesus, me, and my loved ones. It won't be Jesus, me, and my accomplishments. It won't be Jesus and me and how great I am as a parent or as a pastor. No, it's just going to be Jesus and me. You know, the realization came to me at that moment that um, he didn't need me to make him the highest object of my affection. I needed to make him the object of my highest affection. And I slowly opened up my hands and my heart to God. And I said, Jesus, you're enough. I surrendered my life and my future totally to him. And the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, just flooded my heart. And friends, you know, at some point, each of us, we need to decide whether Jesus is enough. It's important that we do that. Because I can tell you this, whatever you put before Jesus will be the source of your greatest frustration and disappointment. If you put your career ahead of Jesus, you count on it, your career will be the source of your greatest worry, frustration, and disappointment. If you put your family your marriage, your finances, your dating relationship, your success as a mother or a father, you put any of those things ahead of Jesus, you can expect that those things are the ones that are going to keep you up at night and are going to be at the heart of your disappointment. Now, friends, our God's a good God. And we can trust him even when life is not turning out the way that we hoped it would. He will use whatever we have. He will give us whatever we need to accomplish His sovereign purpose in and through our life, whatever that might look like. And I urge you, oh, I urge you not to fear Him or to avoid the path that He's called you to, however difficult it may be, but to trust Him with all of your heart. Because one day you'll realize that when all that you have left is Jesus, you'll realize that he is enough. Would you stand with me for closing prayer?
Let's open our hands to the Lord and just, again, give a moment. Ask those two questions. Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? those who are prayer partners if you'd make your way up here and if any of you have a prayer need or would just like to talk to someone about anything whether it's related to what we talked about this morning or not just make your way up here before you leave I hope those two questions will be two questions that you you sort of keep in front of you all week as you think about our time together here allow God to speak to you and have the courage to respond to him. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.